Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit MerylArnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Welcome, friends. Thank you for listening today to another episode of The Mindful Minute. I am here with my second conversation with Dr. Andrew Newberg. Dr. Newberg, you might remember, came out in 2020 with his newest book, Brain Weaver. It's all about brain health and weaving together these different elements that create a really healthy mind. He is known as a neurotheologist, and has really spent his life exploring what happens in our mind when we have spiritual experiences. Now, because we just wrapped up a meditation series that is really looking at this magical overlap in time and space of three different faiths, three different traditions, We had Passover, we had Easter, we had Ramadan, all happening within the month of April in 2022. And as we looked at these different elements that, at least in my mind, are calling for a sense of unity and coming together as a people, I thought it would be really fun to wrap up the series with another conversation with Dr. Newberg. So you'll hear us talk a little bit about what spirituality is. We look at it both from religious experience and we look at it from spiritual experiences that happen in meditation, that happen walking in nature or in a creative act. And it's not so much about a belief in a specific being or a belief in anything specific in all honesty, as it is about the sense of love, compassion, openness, connection with other people. It's one of the most profound takeaways that I've had from my own meditation practice and one that I hope you experience in yours. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation. It was so fun for me. I'm going to have him back on the show. It's like he just is a fascinating person, and I hope uh, you find that too. Let's listen. Well, Dr. Newberg, thank you so much for coming back to chat with me. I am so happy to get to pick up another conversation with you. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So, you know, as we're recording this, I am wrapping up a meditation series that is focused on this really interesting overlap we're seeing in April of 2022 of Passover, of Easter, and Ramadan. There three different calendars, essentially, that happen to overlap this year. Right. And as I'm wrapping up the discussion around it, I thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation about spirituality in general and the way it impacts our well-being. And so, you know, you literally wrote not the book, but many, many books. (laughs) (laughs) 
on this very topic, looking at it from so many different lenses, which I think is really fascinating. And I thought maybe we could just start with a little bit of what does spirituality encompass? How about that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. As a researcher, I get very excited about thinking about definitions. I know that's kind of boring for other people, but I wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology. And of course, neurotheology is, is this field that we're talking about, about sort of the, the relationship between the brain and our religious and spiritual selves and trying to understand that, that connection. But in that book, Principles of Neurotheology, the first chapter is about definitions and about, you know, what is spirituality? What is religion? What is mind? What is soul? What is, you know, how do we define all these terms? And I mean, obviously everybody sort of has a little bit of their own terms. And, and for the people who are listening, I, I would actually, you know, almost throw it back to them a little bit to encourage each person to, to think a little bit about what they, mm. what they mean when they say I'm feeling spiritual or, or I have a religious belief or something like that, what that actually means to them. What's actually, you know, been fascinating to me, and I've actually even done that exercise with students and people in, in all different kinds of categories, put religiousness up on the board and spirituality and ask them to, to define these terms. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of overlap. There's also times what I've always found fascinating is somebody will say, well, spirituality is really, you know, the individual's experience. And then religion is sort of the group. But then somebody else will raise their hand and say, but, but wait a minute, spirituality can be done you know, spiritual practices like meditation can be done as a group. And somebody who's religious will say, yeah, and you know, I, I do my prayers at home by myself. So there is a lot of overlap. Ultimately, spirituality does typically refer to various kinds of elements of the experience. So what do people think, feel that has something to do with connecting them or helping them in their journey, their search for something sacred? And of course, sacred can be defined also very broadly. I mean, in that context, for some people, it is a more religious concept. It is the connection with God. For other people, it might be trying to connect to a universal consciousness, or even for somebody who considers themselves to be an atheist, it could be somebody who just connects to the universe and nature or something like that. So, I, you know, usually one of the differentiators, I guess, as best as possible, is that sometimes religiousness or a religion is something that is at least identified by a group of people. So there's a group of people who say, this is what it means to be Catholic. This is what it means to be Jewish or whatever. But again, even there, I mean, there's so much overlap and a lot of spiritual groups and, and programs and approaches and meditation programs, you know, work together as a group of individuals. So, uh, but I think, you know, to me, ultimately, it's still something about feeling connected to something greater than the self and the feelings that are part of that. Um, that's to me how I would at least start by defining spirituality. So a long-winded answer to a, a simple question. <laughs> well, a very complicated question, right? Yes. It's so interesting. And, and one of the things that really jumps out at me about at least the research that I've read of yours is that it isn't just, you're not just looking at one version of spirituality. You've actually right. done studies across many, many of these versions of spirituality let's go down the path of religion for a moment, and then we'll circle to some of these other practices like meditation that don't fall in that category. Within Brainweaver, your newest book, I was looking at some images I think that you did of Franciscan nuns in prayer. I know Mm -hmm. that you've also done studies with rabbis, like you've covered sort of the religious spectrum. That we've tried to, yes. And I'm curious what stands out in terms of 
the religious experience? Like, what is it that confers brain health? What is it that confers well-being in that? Well, so, you know, first of all, across traditions, and, and even when you bring in traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism, there are certainly similarities as well as differences across all of those traditions. And some are a little bit more specific in terms of what they're striving for. Others are a little bit broader in terms of just kind of the overall what a person starts to experience. I guess, you know, when we get to more specifically detailing the question about the health and well-being that people have, what we find is, is that these practices as a general statement, and again, you know, we can get into the, the weeds of the details of what happens in, in a nun's brain versus a Buddhist brain, whatever. But they tend to involve areas of our brain that are associated with our emotional responses and the regulation of those emotional responses. So what I mean is that many practices like different types of Christian prayer, Buddhist meditation, they involve our frontal lobes becoming active. And as our frontal lobes become active, part of what happens is that our frontal lobes are very good for helping us to concentrate, but they also help to regulate our emotional responses. In fact, the emotional areas of our brain, which are usually referred to as the limbic system, it's a little bit of a seesaw, so to speak, with the frontal lobes kind of on one side and the limbic areas on the other side. And in fact, the fulcrum for that tends to be a, a small area in the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. And so, you know, that's like if, if all of us think about how we react in the world, I mean, if somebody like cuts us off on the freeway and we get angry, well, the limbic system goes up and our frontal lobes go down and we might shout out some crazy thing. You know, we, we, we speak without thinking, <laughs> uh, but then ultimately the frontal lobes come on and they say, well, look, you got to get to work. You got other issues to worry about. Don't worry about this jerk on the freeway. And it kind of calms the emotions down. So it's sort of, you know, there's, there's this sort of balancing that goes on back and forth that helps to you know, regulate those emotional responses. And what the evidence suggests is that as you do these practices, either in the moment or even over the long term, that as you do them, you're, you're changing these areas of the brain and you're sort of creating a better ability to balance them. And so the clinical result of that is what we tend to see in terms of doing these practices that there tends to be lower levels of anxiety and depression and so forth because the person is able to regulate their emotional responses in a, in a more effective way. That's the simplistic version of how do these practices, uh, irrespective of the tradition, tend to lead to a better sense of health and well-being. Now, there's, there's other elements to this as well. I mean, the sense of meaning and purpose that becomes a part of the, the spiritual tradition sometimes very positive emotions, feelings of compassion, love, optimism about the world, and so forth. All of those things can contribute to a person's better you know, overall sense of health and well-being. And the last thing I'll throw out, and we might talk about this a little bit later, is that there is the negative side too, and, and that is important for people to realize. And in fact, um, there's been some very interesting articles about practices like you know, meditation, mindfulness in particular, since that's become very popular, where things don't go so well, you know, and, and so there are times where these practices can, can lead to more negative problems with the emotions, uh, negative regulation of emotions, increases in anxiety and depression and so forth. And, and that also is something important for us to be able to look at and try to understand both from a brain perspective, but also with an eye towards how do we try to change that around so that, that, that people really can try to find the more positive side of these things. Oh, that's so interesting. And I really want to follow that thread. And I, you know, I really appreciated that you pointed this out in the 
in your book, specifically around religion and like paying attention to what this ultimate goal is not the right word, but maybe focus, right? And so what I noted that you wrote was when religion fosters love and compassion, brain health goes up dramatically. When it instead fosters anger, hatred, and the desire to dominate others, brain health goes down dramatically. You know, and I think that that in this particular moment in time that we find ourselves, it's a really powerful thing to hold in mind as we're paying attention to the practices that we hope support us, right? Absolutely. And, and, and to just echo that brilliant statement that you read of mine. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> no, uh, but I mean, that, that is what, you know, it's what the evidence suggests. And it makes sense that, that when people are focusing on compassion, uh, doing things like loving kindness, meditation, thinking about being open to other people's ideas, being compassionate about other people who come to different perspectives than we do. All of that tends to keep our anxiety and our stress levels and, and our emotions under check and, and in, in improved state. When we do start to think about hating other people or you know fear or guilt or you know all these different negative emotions, then that just ratchets up the the negative emotions within that given individual. And so we do have to think about that. We uh, many years ago, my late colleague and I, uh, this Eugene Dequilly talked a lot about rituals, which of course practices like meditation and prayer are. Mm. And one of my favorite sentences that we've used is that rituals are a morally neutral technology, meaning that they can be used for great good and bringing people together and feeling all connected and, and you know trying to feel experiences of love and compassion and oneness, or they can be very divisive. And in fact, you know, as, as I have gone through the last 25, 30 years of studying all this the relationship between spirituality and the brain or religion and the brain, you know, when we come across some very negative perspectives uh, that lead to things like cult behavior or terrorism and things like that, a lot of rituals are used, but basically driving home these very negative points. But one of the things too, which to me is also a very interesting piece to this is that it really is what the focus of the, of the practice is, what the goal is. So you can have a very small group of, you got one person who is meditating on we're all one and they have an incredible feeling of connectedness with all humanity. And then you can have a large group of people who are meditating. We're all one, but everyone outside of us is not all one, you know? And so, you know, Mm. that group becomes very cohesive. And in that context, you know, they're all connected, but then everyone outside of that group is viewed in in a much more negative way and and ultimately leading to a lot of anger, hatred, and and even destructive behaviors, which unfortunately is what we we see in the world around us today and and, and what we've seen historically. So the ultimate idealistic goal of neurotheology and, and all the work that I do, can we understand the negative side and learn about it? And then can we use that information to ultimately help to direct people in the more positive ways of thinking? Can we try to to get us out of this sort of divisiveness and and separateness and try to bring us back to a a greater feeling of of oneness and connection? And to me, one of the the things, and I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little here, but- please. But, you know, to me, one of the things that's been remarkable, as you mentioned, I've been so fortunate to be able to see and study all these different kinds of practices. So Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and many others. And to me, one of the big take-home messages of all this kind of work is an appreciation for everyone's 
individuality, everyone's uniqueness. As I like to say, if there's seven and a half billion people in the world, there's really seven and a half billion religions, spiritual perspectives, political perspectives. You know, no one sees things exactly the way we do as an individual. And that's what we would expect. But then we may need to be open and understanding of the fact that people may have come to conclusions that are different from ours. And we have to find some ways of being a little bit better in handling that and appreciating that and, and maybe even reveling in that. You know, can we kind of enjoy the differences that we have and and have fun with them and and uh, and appreciate people on that level? So that's my little soapbox. <laughs> yeah, well, I have 57,000 questions that I'm going to try not to ask all at once. And the first is this. So you bring up a really interesting point to me. And one of the things that we were just talking about in this meditation series is this really fascinating conundrum of you hear somebody speak at the opposite end of the political spectrum, and you cannot even fathom how they could possibly think this idea makes sense or is fair or just or what, you know, it's incredulous. And as much as you are jaw on the ground in shock at their beliefs, there's this part of your brain that's thinking, man, when they hear me talk, the exact same thing is happening in their brain. It's flipped. Yep, right? exactly. Right. It's, it's the, they're in equal amount of shock at right. my beliefs, right? right? And so my question to you is, is there something in the science that shows us how we cultivate enough space to hold that? Right, right. Right? I think... One of the things, let's talk about the shock part first. Fundamentally, if we start with the human brain, we say, well, look, you know, all of us are kind of existing within our brain, looking out at this universe, which is infinite. And we have access to 0. 0.0000 and 100 zeros, 1% of the entire known universe. And yet somehow our brain remarkably gives us a very clear and what we think sensible rendition of what the world is. So that becomes our perspective on reality. And of course, it's shaped by everything that brought us up to our moment. So it starts with our our genes and and how our parents raised us and whether we were raised in a religious household or, or you know, one political, you know, are we listening to our Republican parents who are telling us all about what it means to be Republican? Are we listening to a Democratic parents that are telling us what it means to be Democrat? We go out into the world, into our school, and we hear, you know, what our friends say and our teachers say, and we read books. And within that, we have various things that happen to us. Some of us are raised with relatively little emotional trauma. Others are heavy emotional trauma. So all of these things kind of swirl around in each one of us that bring us to where we are today, looking at the world and saying, this is what makes sense to us. And so, you know, now that we get to that point, now we're talking to somebody else who has a completely different set of genetics, environment, people, you know, all the traumas and everything. And they have their perspective on reality. So now the problem is, is that one of the things in, in one of the early books that I did called Why God Won't Go Away, we talked about the fact that one of the key functions of our brain is self-maintenance. It's designed to help keep us alive. And it does that by giving us a view of reality that we can work with, that we can anticipate things happening. We know what to eat. We know what to not eat. We know who to talk to. We know who to be careful about. And so we have this whole picture of reality that helps us to survive. And that's the goal, I mean, of, of the brain, basically, is to help us, or one of the main goals. So 
we have this whole perspective on reality. Now, here comes somebody else who says, no, there's a whole other way of looking at it. Now, our brain has a choice. Either or, right? I mean, either we're right and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong. Well, which one is our brain going to choose? Well, it's certainly far more easy for our brain to say, no, 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 no. They don't know what they're talking about. I've got this all figured out. I'm good. I'm going to reject, you know, what they say. If we were to accept that somebody else who had a completely different perspective is right, then that puts our brain in a very challenging and problematic perspective. It's a very anxiety provoking idea that we don't know the world, you know, that we don't know what's going on in the world properly and that we don't have it right. So either we're going to have a huge amount of anxiety thinking somebody else has got it right and we don't, or we're going to reject the other person. And, you know, historically, uh, far more often people reject what somebody else says. And this is not just in politics. This is in science. This is in, you know, religion. This is in morality. This is in almost every aspect of human life. And I especially want to mention science because we always think science is this wonderful objective thing, but there's an old saying that science progresses one funeral at a time. And, and it's really true. I mean, you know, scientists are, you know, they're, we're all human beings and we're every bit as petty and, and cutthroat and nasty as anybody else. So, um, but anyway, <laughs> so the challenge then is, you know, how do we, well, mm -hmm. you know, what do we start to think about this other person? And part of the problem is, is that, you know, as we get more and more comfortable in our own way of thinking about things, then, well, why would they keep telling us that we're wrong? Maybe there's something wrong with that person. They're evil. They're bad. You know, they're immoral. Why would they keep telling me that the world is X way when I say it's Y way? And they keep telling me it. So that's what starts to lead to those reactions and then the violence and, and you, know, you know, real tremendous animosity and so forth and even violence. Part of it is, as you said, you said it beautifully in that how do we create sort of a space for understanding and being open to that while trying to keep ourselves from, you know, having our brain run away with itself and saying, whoa, you know, you can't think that they're right because that means we don't know what the heck's going on. So part of it, I think, is through practices like meditation and prayer, where we can try to keep our body and our brain in a, in a calmer state so that we can start to engage other possibilities. And I think ultimately, to the extent that people can, I think it's always helpful to sort of challenge ourselves and challenge our beliefs, but in a constructive way, you know, so it's not that, you know, you try to get away from what I'm right and they're wrong or they're right and I'm wrong, but I have a way that works for me. They have a way that works for them. Maybe there's some things I can learn from them. Maybe there's some things they can learn from me. And so it doesn't get into the right or wrong so much as what may work or what might be beneficial for one side or the other. But it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge. Even the most open people can't be super open because we need our, I mean, we, you know, the flip side is we have to have, I mean, it's not a bad thing that we do that. It's not a bad thing that we create our beliefs and we have our, our perspectives on the world, but we, we do the best that we can. But I think also ultimately to, again, to sort of recognize that we're all in that same boat, it really shouldn't become a surprise that we have different ideas and different perspectives. And, and maybe, you know, while we don't necessarily have to get rid of the beliefs that we hold, maybe we can think about it as are there ways we can enhance that by mm. talking to somebody from a different race, a different culture, a different religion or whatever, and learn a little bit more about who they are and who we are.
I love that. And I'm realizing that you highlight this even as you talk about spirituality specifically, because one of the things I noticed you reiterated several times is these practices are only beneficial if they support you and you believe them, right? Right. So if you're going to church because somebody said, wow, going to church is really good for your brain, but the ideological information you're receiving is offending you or hurting you in some way, you're not receiving the brain health, right? So it's not necessarily about you must be religious or you must be this religion, but what are the pieces within some version of spiritual practice? Right. And I have so many people come to a meditation practice solely because they're not looking for spirituality. I'm stressed out and I got to get through my day. Right. Right. And then I think ultimately what happens often as we continue to practice, as we start to feel into that place of, there does seem to be this like calling for oneness or this sense of connection to something greater. And maybe it opens into more of a spiritual practice, but you do highlight other practices that are not religious at all. Oh yeah. I mean, certainly there are so many different things that people can do and they do not have to be religious or spiritual per se. I mean, some people sometimes even call what seem to be, you know, non-spiritual practices, spiritual things like creativity, music, art, walking in the woods, So there are a lot of different ways of trying to engage that other side of ourselves and trying to feel like there are good ways of trying to make that kind of connection. You raise some really interesting points again about how does one kind of decide what to focus on? You know, one of the exercises that might be really helpful for people, and this is something that we talked about in in a couple of our books, one of them was called Words Can Change Your Brain. We talk about an inner values exercise. It's a very simple thing to do. You basically get into a very brief meditative state. You take a couple of deep breaths. We ask people to sit down at a table or a desk or whatever, have a piece of paper and a pencil out, and to just take a few deep breaths to kind of clear the mind for about a minute or so. And then you ask yourself, what is my innermost value? And we leave it very broad like that. And then you just write down whatever pops into your head and and maybe do this over a period of several days because you come up with different answers each time. And then what we do is, is say, well, let's look at what got written down and let's think a little bit about, are you engaging your life according to whatever those inner values are? So as an example, let's say somebody says uh, that one of their innermost values is love. So are you loving yourself? Are you loving, you know, the people around you? Are you loving the rest of humanity? Are you loving the world, the earth? So like, are you taking that value and trying to apply it to other people and to all the things that you do? Now, again, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes people have to think a little bit too about, you know, values that might be more problematic. Maybe they're more materialistic. I, you know, I want to have a lot of money and a lot of things. And so part of that then has to get back to while, you know, on one hand, there isn't something fundamentally wrong with that, if that's something that's important to people. But what are the other pieces to that? Are there innermost values of honesty, of trying to be a good person, of being charitable, of being forgiving and so forth? So, you know, there could be material, hopefully are more non-material values that people can foster. And the more you do a practice, you know, what, what can be helpful sometimes is say, 
take somebody who wants to do a secular practice, maybe like mindfulness or whatever, and say, okay, you know, write down your innermost values over four or five days now, and then go through this program and then write them down again and see if they've shifted. In fact, some of our uh, studies, which we haven't published at this point, but, but we showed that, you know, they really do move from a more materialistic and more goal oriented, you know, I, I want to be successful. I want to, I want to provide for my family to feelings of, of love, honesty, compassion, you know, that kind of thing. So there can be a movement in different directions, depending on how one goes. And, and again, hopefully the goal is, is that you try to get to those more positive attributes that are virtues is another term that gets thrown about but things that have that more positive side of who we are as human beings and, and tries to contribute to a feeling of openness, oneness, connectedness, and ultimately uh, feelings of empathy and compassion. And, you know, I noticed when I think about a lot of the practices that you name, at least to me, one of the things that comes to mind is I feel like there is at least the opportunity for a softening of like the sense of, self or boundary of self maybe. And, and in meditation, we talk about this a lot, right? We're sort of a piece of that practice ultimately is a letting go of this identification of self, right? Same thing right. when I walk in the woods, I like feel a sense of letting go of that, right? Or listening to an amazing right. piece of music. And that's an interesting thing to say. And it's just something I get a ton of questions about because that also can be scary maybe. But I, I yeah. wonder if like that sense of softening or letting go of self is that pathway through all of these different practices that's providing that sense of connection or unity or opening to a greater existence. Well, you know, certainly when it comes to the brain, this has been an area that we've looked a lot at at in terms of that sense of oneness. And one of the common findings that we see across a number of practices that, that lead to that sense of oneness is a change of activity, particularly a decrease of activity in um, the sort of the back top part of the brain called the parietal lobe that normally takes our sensory information and tries to create our sense of self, our spatial sense of self. And so, you know, where, where are the boundaries between ourselves and the world? boundary between other objects out there. So as this part of the brain quiets down in its activity, we have a blurring of the boundary between ourself and the world. And we have a sense of connectedness or oneness with the world or with God, whatever the person is particularly focused on. It is intriguing because, you know, on one hand, and I remember having this conversation many, many years ago with, with my mentor, this Eugene DeQuilly, about sort of this interesting dual response that people have. Because on one hand, you'd, you'd be thinking that the loss of the self is a very anxiety-provoking situation. You know, we don't, I don't want to let myself go. That, that really could be very problematic. But what is interesting is that as you expand your connection with other things, in some sense, the self doesn't go away, but it becomes expanded. And so mm. you become what you are instead of, you know, me as Andrew Newberg becomes the world or become, you know, so, so you actually in many, you know, many circumstances, many people report this is derive strength and, and, you know, power and, and calmness and so forth from recognizing this larger perspective. And it even gets back to your point about two people who have very divergent views of each other. When you go into a bit more of a meditative state about that interaction, 
you see that other person not as the enemy, the other side, but as a person who has their beliefs. They're part of nature and they're part of the universe and they're part of God or, you know, whatever, whatever your perspective is that modifies how you think about them uh, in a different kind of way. And, and it can be, you know, it can be very powerful. Now, again, we touched on the negative side a little earlier. Sometimes it can become a problem for people and people can even enter into dissociative states and so forth. I mean, I, that's pretty rare, but it is something to be aware of. Gets back into sort of the larger um, clinical perspective of, well, what should people do as far as meditation practices go? And for the most part, meditation practices tend to be very useful for people, but it's always important, one, and we kind of touched on this, to make sure that the goals of the practice are you know, similar and concordant with your goals. So if your goal is just stress management, then a very simple practice uh, of breathing meditation or mindfulness might be great. You know, that might be just what you need to, to calm yourself down. Uh, if your goal is something more spiritual or religious, then there's other approaches that can be used for that. So that that's important. And also to make sure that somebody's not saying you have to do this. And if you don't do this, then there's something wrong with you. You know, that, that may set off some some alarms that maybe that's not a good perspective for me to, um, to pursue. So I, I think it's important to make sure that whatever you're doing in general, it should feel okay. It certainly shouldn't feel, you know, super problematic. I know always there can be challenges at times. So, th- you know, that's okay. But if it really becomes problematic or is it not consistent with the ways in which you think about things, it becomes important to try to think of, of other ways of engaging that. And by the same token, we were talking about, you know, going back to the, um, that sense of self and, and the feeling of oneness and connectedness. If you are someone who really does have some serious psychological issues, if you have schizophrenia, if you have, you know, bipolar disease that is not well controlled, then you have to be a little bit more cautious, at least about doing very intense practices. You know, maybe, maybe again, maybe mild practices that are, you know, yoga, mindfulness and so forth. They might be great at just helping to to reduce stress, to help to improve depressive symptoms and things like that, in addition to whatever other therapeutic interventions are being done, medications or psychotherapy. But, you know, you do have to be a little cautious about doing more intense practices that also could contribute to to negative psychological well, uh, health and well-being. I want to ask you a question. And please, if I'm stepping out of the realm that you feel comfortable chatting, please, please just let me know that. One of the things that I try to be very conscientious of bringing awareness to, within, at least within meditation practice, is, you know, we talk a lot about things like connectedness and compassion and being open. And, and I think it's really important that we hold those teachings and those experiences along with sometimes there's a need for advocacy right? It's not a practice that says you just have to sit down and accept life as it is and like be happy about right. about your lot in life, right? Sometimes you have to stand up and say, this actually isn't acceptable and I'm going to ask for change or fight for change or do whatever it is that I'm going to do. And I'm curious if maybe you have any experience with that in terms of the science of how people engage that aspect of advocacy or activism. Well, you know, I mean, obviously it comes from people who feel very strongly about certain things. 
and feel that there are various issues in the world that require change. At some point, how much is okay to accept uh, versus how much is it okay to change? And it does depend. If you're caught in a relationship with somebody and it's not going well and there's a lot of issues and problems and arguments, it may be worth trying to work it out, at least to some degree. Obviously, at some point, it gets to a point where you do need to go in different directions or you need to you know, move away. And, and it's important to be able to recognize that as well, while at the same time, maybe still recognizing, okay, they're another person, but just not the right person for me or something like that. And the same thing, you know, and I think you're probably talking about, you know, other like politically oriented kinds of activism. Yeah, you know, again, it's a challenge between the balance of appreciating other people, even people who may disagree with you, and at the same time stating, you know, whether certain things are, are, are not okay. Part of what I have felt, though, and, and I think, so maybe this is an answer to your question, because I, there, there probably isn't a lot of specific brain related data on that, your question. But I think that that part of what, if we think about how our brain works and how it operates, if there is somebody who has a different perspective than you, and you kind of come at them very directly and try to just change the what they're doing, usually it's going to get back to what we were talking about. Their, their brain's going to say, no, 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 this person's crazy. Forget it. But I personally feel that, you know, if activism can be engaged in a, in a constructive way and in a way of saying, let me talk to you, let me try to show you how we are as people or what, you know, what I think is important and why I think it's important. You know, are there things about what I'm saying that you agree with? Are there things where we can find a common ground where we can say, okay, you don't look at the environmental issues the same way I look at them, but maybe we can, you know, both appreciate that we want to clean up the trash in our area or something, you know, the point is, is that there's things, you know, maybe you don't have to change another person completely into this other way of thinking about things, but let's start with that. And then we work on that. And then, you know, we keep moving. So again, I mean, I know, you know, sometimes revolution is, is ultimately the direction that people feel they need to go. The world is, uh, historically has had those kinds of paradigm-shifting moments. And sometimes those paradigm shifts are are necessary. But exactly when and how and why and what goes on in the brains of those people, we don't fully know. Uh, again, we see it in science, politics, religion. It's a great question. And it's something that you know does not have a, a simple answer. Yeah. I, I mean, that's basically exactly what I say is that I don't have an answer. Right. I think it's a really interesting thing to hold space for and to pay attention to. And I think the practices that we're talking about really allow us maybe a little bit more space around that before we fly into reaction so that we're very conscious about the choices we're making, which I think is, you know, valuable in many ways. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, I always do feel, and and, and again, maybe this is idealistic, but I, I, I do feel that the more we can be constructive with people, you know, what, People don't agree with me. I, I don't say you're an idiot. I say, well, well, wait a minute. You know, you you said this, this, and this, but there's other data that suggests that, that, and that. What do you think about that? You know, uh, ask them questions. You know, why, why, why do you feel that this is still, you know, a valid perspective to take? If there's other evidence to the contrary, 
Um, you know, what, what things are you thinking about that might be helpful for me to understand? You know, so mm. I think ultimately, uh, it, it's certainly a less violent way of doing things. Whether it's more effective or not, I guess it really just depends on people. I mean, you know, ultimately when you have, um, some people in the world, uh, like Putin's of the world or whatever, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know how to address something like that and try to do that in, in a kind, conscientious and compassionate way. But I guess we'll mm. have to find out. <laughs> I want to ask one last question, which I feel like maybe we've been kind of leading into for this. Let's talk a little bit about ontological anxiety and why spirituality is perhaps a practice that helps us with that anxiety. Well, I think it, uh, in, in some ways, what's nice is that we've kind of addressed parts of it. You know, when we talk about how we think about reality, we're really talking about the brain, you know, having this ontological anxiety, like what is the world all about? You know, what are we supposed to think about the world? Where, where is truth? Where is, you know, what's real? How do we know it? Uh, and then what are we supposed to do with it once we know it? And um, we only are exposed to such a tiny percentage of the universe that we should be pretty anxious about the fact that we don't really understand the world. And so, you know, when you wind up having practices like meditation or prayer and different types of belief systems that can help to quell that anxiety by giving us a sense of meaning and purpose, a sense of understanding, a sense of, of how we can connect to the world in a more effective way, then that hopefully helps us to overcome a little bit of that. It helps us to answer those big questions. It helps us to make us feel a little bit better about them. But it still gets back to the fundamental question, which is what's driven my whole body of work and, and what I still am, am trying to explore, which is, you know, well, what is the nature of reality and how do we get to know that? I'm not saying that we'll never figure out an answer to it, but uh, obviously it's quite challenging but but I think that you know there are ways of trying to get at that which can help to quell that anxiety. And personally, I mean, I find that actually rather than being very definitive about ideas, saying that this is the answer, I find more comforted by saying, what's the question? Or can we pursue the answer to a question and keep exploring that? And to me, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's like the difference of, you know, walking along the path of your journey as opposed to getting there, because no matter when you get to a certain point, there is always more to go. So if you focus on the journey rather than any given endpoint, maybe we'll feel a little bit better about the fact that maybe we didn't get to where we wanted to go. <laughs> so hopefully we'll, we'll wind up in a place that that's a good place. That's where spirituality, I think, you know, comes into play and, and provide some of those, inf you know, some of those answers that again, you know, settle down our emotional responses, gives us a little bit more of a feeling of, I don't know if control is the right word, but understanding certainly helps us to feel like we, we have a little bit better sense as to what we need to do in our lives. But I think if we operate from those inner values that, you know, tends to be very, uh, feel feelings of compassion and love and openness and understanding and, and inquisitiveness and exploration, mm. um, hopefully together we'll all figure out an answer to these questions and, and, uh, that would be wonderful, but we'll see. We have a long way to go, unfortunately. <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, <laughs> and perhaps our third conversation will be on the nature of reality because I'm there Sounds with good. you. I, I want to totally talk about <laughs> 
I am working on it. <laughs> Excellent. I'm I'm ready for some explanations here. I've been reading all the books. I got a lot of questions. <laughs> well, I am working on it. I always tell everyone if I ever figure it out, I will certainly let everyone know. <laughs> I Dr. haven't gotten Newberg. there yet. Thank you so much for your time for this conversation. It's been so enlightening, and I think it's just such a valuable topic to be discussing. So thank you for sharing some of the science with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find this show. To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.